Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. This is uh, episode five of Noel Cruz's story. Hi, Noel. Hi, Dave. How are you going? Um, now, where, where we got up to with the last episode, you were just about to go up to Butterworth. And in this episode, we're going to have a look at the Butterworth uh, period of your life. Uh, RAAF Butterworth, wasn't it? Or yes, it was. Yep. Um, in fact, uh, I think you, uh, you expressed some interest or, or some surprise when I mentioned that we had so many jets up there. In fact, the Royal Australian Air Force's commitment into Southeast Asia, particularly Butterworth at the time, had high priority. Um, and the simplest example of that was the fact that all of the later model of our Sabres, the Mark 32s, were in Butterworth. Okay? Um, some of the earlier models, the Mark 31s, uh, well, I'll rephrase that, most of the Mark, all of the Mark 31s were in Australia, plus a couple of 32s. It was a bit of a a bit of a mix there, but all of this, shall we say, the, the later marks were always up uh, uh, in, in Butterworth and were re-equipped just with those because of their slightly, uh, shall we say, enhanced capabilities over the old 31s. My aeroplane, the 941, was one of the last of the Mark 31s. I think uh, about 945 was the last one, and then they went to the Mark 32 model, which, of course, invites the obvious question from the river counter's point of view. Yeah. <laughs> What's the difference between the marks? What is the difference between the marks? All right, this is for the rivet counters before we get into the, the situation up there. When Australia first decided to make the, uh, the F-86 with all the Australian enhancements to it, the very first model was called the Mark 30. I have no idea why they picked the number 30, because there were not 29 models before that. Right. Um, and it had uh, all the extra power and all the guns and so forth of, of, of all the other airplanes, except it had the F-86F model leading edge, which was a slotted leading edge. Okay. Had automatic wing slots, which were designed to pop out at high angles of attack to enhance the turn rate. And indeed, it did. Um, the problem is, of course, um, well, there was two problems associated with that. You couldn't guarantee that they would pop out at exactly the same time, yeah. which means you'd be pulling a hard turn, have one pop out a second before the other one, and this would cause you to roll right. and kind of spoil your tracking. But the primary one, which they hadn't thought through, and I suppose from the Yanks' point of view, they were thinking more of, of lower altitude air combat because they had a less powerful aeroplane. But we were, in, in those days, thinking more of high altitude intercepts. Like Avro Vulcans and things like that were coming at us at 50,000 feet yeah. in training, and we expected all the bad guys would too. And when you get to much higher altitudes, the indicated airspeed gets quite low compared with the Mach number and the true airspeed. Uh, I mentioned uh, before when I first checked out on the aeroplane that you would climb the aeroplane at 400 knots until you reach Mach 0.83. That occurred at 18,000 feet. Okay. So by the 18,000 feet, 400 knots indicated was Mach 0.83. By the time you got above 30,000 feet, holding a constant Mach 0.83, the indicated airspeed is dropping back quite rapidly. So by the time you're up at 40,000 feet, you might be doing eight tenths the speed of sound, but you're indicating only about 250 knots. Okay. Which means to pull in sort of a hard turn at that point, you're at max angle attack and the slats are coming out. Well, slats and supersonic airflows do not mix. 
Right. And what happened then, of course, was these slats were actually interfering with the airflow because you get these huge shock waves off the slats and actually detract from the turn performance. Yep. So it became a bit of a compromise as to whether we want high altitude performance or low altitude performance. And the decision was made both in the United States and in Australia to get rid of the slat at leading edge. Okay. And the leading edge was completely detachable from the main spar forward. <clears throat> and they then introduced a thing called the 6-3 leading edge. Uh, it was a solid leading edge, no slats. The wing root end of it was actually six inches further forward than the original and the tip end was three inches further forward so it's called the 6.3 which it gave the wing a few percent extra area yep. it increased the sweep back of the leading edge by another couple of degrees which made that wing roll tendency going transonic even better yeah and also there was room for more fuel we could carry an extra two or three hundred pounds of fuel in these leading edge tanks okay okay so it gave the airplane um uh, better range and it gave a better high altitude performance. So all of the Mark 30s as were coming off the line were then retrofitted with these new 6.3 leading edges and became called the Mark 31. Right. Okay. Right. The Mark 31 had what was called a single station wing. In other words, you could have one disposable hard point on the wing for dropping things off, either tanks or bombs. Yep. You always had the little sort of holes in the wing for screwing these permanent rocket features because you could carry eight rockets across the board and the sidewinder pylons were fitted later on and they were also permanent. But the disposable one, in other words, where you could drop things off and so forth, was a single station wing. And it was decided that wasn't enough because you needed to go somewhere with tanks and bombs, not tanks or bombs. <clears throat> so then they introduced the Mark 32, which simply had a double station wing. That's on each wing, of course, so you could carry tanks and bombs. Okay, yep. All right? And you better remember which you're carrying or which airplane you're in because a couple of ramifications. If you press the bomb button and you didn't have a single station, double station wing, but a single station wing, you could jettison the fuel tanks. Oh. Okay. Also, they enhanced the, 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 the trim system a little bit. They made it a bit faster to retrim. So from the point of pilot's point of view, the only physical difference was remember which wing you've got as to which button you push, and you had this faster reacting trim. And so in 76 Squadron, when I was at Williamtown, we uh, would interchange these airplanes all the time. You'd, you'd walk out and you'd have a, a Mark 31 or a Mark 32. Oh, also I must add too that originally the order for, from the government for the, uh, for the Sabre from the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation was for 90 airplanes. Okay. And they developed you know, through these marks as I've just explained. Yep. And then they shut down the line. Uh, it was only a couple of years later that the, the Air Force said, hang on. We need more because we've pranked a few. Yeah, yeah. Now we want another 30, please. So they cranked up the line again, but a lot of the, the guys who worked on the original ones weren't there or had moved on, and so it was a whole new deal. Yeah. And so for some strange reason, when they cranked up these last 30, they didn't call them the 900 series, like mine was 941, and the one that's flying in tomorrow right now is 983. Yeah. But the, the, the new batch were a 300 series. So you could have a 300 series Mark 32 or a 900 series Mark 32. Okay. Physically, there was no difference at all. Some guys reckon they could tell the difference in the in the build quality, if you like. <laughs> they reckon the 900 ones were better and smoother, but I could never tell the difference. Yeah. Uh, so that was just a technical thing for the, for the river counters. The thing that pops into my mind, having talked about this, I can recall one day at 76 Squadron, we were going to go out for a low-level simulated strike. And the leader had briefed us that um, since we're, car we're, all, we're going to fly Mark 32s, he set it up so that we're all Mark 32s, which means we could actually go into the simulated bombing run, 
press the bomb button, having selected everything to live, and that would also run the camera, so you could get a sight picture on this target we chose in the middle of nowhere. And um, everyone said, yeah, that's cool, because you couldn't do that with a 31, because that would jettison the tanks. Right, right. So we all went out to our aeroplanes, and unbeknownst to the leader, uh, because a certain wingman forgot to mention it, that when they got to Seinfried's aeroplane, the Mark 32 that he was supposed to fly was unserviceable, so they gave him a Mark 31. And we had tanks, of course, because it's a long-range strike. So we did our low-level thing all around the countryside. Fortunately, we burned all the fuel out of the tanks by then. So we came to roll into the dive and went press, press, press on our buttons to take pictures. And the number four aircraft jettisoned his tanks. <laughs> <laughs> Later on, he said that he would have hit the target with a bomb because the tanks being empty had a different flight and they landed about 100 yards short of the target. And to which everyone went, oh my God, here we go. He's jettisoned these tanks. So the leader then decided that we'd all go round again a couple of times and film the tanks on the ground to make sure that when the, the insurance claims came in from Farmer Brown, we could say, no, they landed in a completely you know, yeah. unoccupied paddock. Yeah. What we didn't know, that just around the little hill we were going around, there was a racehorse stud on the other side of the hill. So whilst we're filming the fall of the tanks being safe, we're scaring the bejesus oh, out of the resource. Oh, no. So that's where the complaints all came from. <laughs> <laughs> this was the fundamental difference between Mark 31s and Mark 32s. Yeah. So anyway, so up in Butterworth, they had all Mark 32s because they figured they needed the range and bombing capability. So that's what they had up there. Now, as a bit of an overview to, to what was going on up there, um, we had confrontation with Indonesia, as I mentioned. Yeah. But the Sabres had been there um, and... Uh, well, start again. There was two Sabre squadrons up there, number three squadron and number seventy-seven squadron, and also uh, there was a Canberra squadron there. Okay. Number two bomber squadron was also based there, so it was a fairly big base from just the Australian Air Force's point of view. Yeah. And there was also a uh, Gloucester Javelin squadron, number sixty squadron RAF yeah. were there as well. So it was a very big, busy base the whole time. The Sabres had been there since the late fifties. I don't know when the Canberras got there because there was a thing called the Malayan Emergency in the 50s where the communists were coming down through to Thailand because there's a peninsula, Malaya is basically a long peninsula yeah. and the top half of which is part of Thailand. Dense, dense tropical jungle and apparently the communist terrorists were trying to infiltrate Malaya at the time and there was some serious stuff going on in the 50s uh, where they pushed way down to uh, Abin Butterworth in the mountains and down towards Kuala Lumpur. Anyway, they were beaten back yeah. by RAF slash RAAF forces in the air and a lot of troops on the ground. To the point where, and I only heard about this at one stage there, they were using the Sabres simply to go out on a daily basis, dozens of times, and just drop supersonic bangs on the jungle. Okay. Not many weapons at all, because you couldn't see anyone on the ground, but by these constant bang, bang, bang going on all day, it would kind of demoralise the communist forces on the ground to think they were being bombed somewhere else and get the hell out of there. Well, I guess it worked because they pushed them back over the Thai border. But there was always this tension there. By the time I got there, uh, this technically was over and confrontation had sprung up. Right? Yeah. So we had that going on as well. Um, <clears throat> in addition to the two squadrons at, uh, at Butterworth, there was a half squadron based up in Ubon in Thailand, okay. which is way over on the Mekong River. It's about, <clears throat> pardon me, about 10 minutes flying time from the the Laotian and the Cambodian border right in the corner there. Yep. So that was being supported, um, and I'll talk a bit more of that at a later time, but from Butterworth. So they had two enhanced squadrons at Butterworth, plus this half squadron there, with the appropriate aeroplanes and personnel to, to outfit both of them. And then down south in Singapore, there was the RF outfit there. They had a, a maritime 
squadron down there of the old Shackletons. Yep. They had a transport squadron with uh, Blackburn Beverleys, would you believe, which were the most ugly aeroplane I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and they had the nine squadron, which was Hawker Hunters. And I think they were Hunter Nines. I may be wrong there because nine squadron and Hunter Nines sometimes confuses me. Yeah. And then the Royal Navy had a constant presence in the Straits of Malacca going up and down with battleships and or aircraft carriers. So we had all of this different activity going on at different times uh, around this whole Malay Peninsula area with the confrontation thing. <clears throat> I suppose what I should, what I'd like to do is talk about the individual um, areas that I was involved with, if you like, involved, probably not the right word, having fun in is probably a better word, because <laughs> this was the first time that I'd ever got involved with dissimilar air combat tactics, right. apart from the little bit of play acting we did with the, uh, with the Mirage. And as I think I already said, it was yeah. early days for the Mirage. They didn't quite know how to operate it properly yet. Um, but from the point of view of the confrontation thing there, they took it a lot more seriously than we kind of got to do in, in Darwin when we discovered nothing was going to come that way. Yeah. But they were a lot closer. I mean, the Straits of Malacca was only about half an hour's flying across before you're in the bad guy's land. Okay. Sumatra was just over the road there yeah. with uh, an airfield called Madan, which supposedly had MiG-17s and MiG-21s based on it. Um, in retrospect, I kind of doubt that. And they had a big radar set up on top of the hill because in the, in the Butterworth area, the Butterworth Air Base was actually on the mainland and straight opposite was a large island called Penang Island, a yep. beautiful island, um, where most of the married folks used to live and catch the ferry boat over every day to, to go to work. Okay. And that was interesting in itself because Penang Island was a, a, a duty-free port. So you could get all sorts of things really cheap there. Right. But the mainland wasn't. So every time you went to, to work, you had to go through customs, which <laughs> sometimes got to be a bit of a pain, I can tell you. Um, anyway, they, uh, they had all sorts of, they said from the, this radar sitting on top of the hill, which could see right over, uh, right across the other side of, of Sumatra, actually, and they claimed that they saw uh, high-speed activity in and out of Medan all the time, and there was the odd border incursion. We used to run our air-to-air -air gunnery uh, range straight out to the Straits of Malacca to a little island, uh, just a rock really, and do a U-turn and come back again. It was right on the border. So we were constantly, if you like, probing towards their border and turning around coming back again. Yeah. Whether that was to excite them or just let them know that we were really there, I don't know. But apparently from time to time, they claimed that they saw uh, paints coming out of Maidan heading towards us. And every time we did a U-turn, they'd turn back too. Yeah. It's a pity they didn't come on, because we were live guns in those days. <laughs> I think if we'd suddenly found a MiG in the middle of our gunnery pattern, we would have just shifted the targets. But I'm not sure. It never actually happened. But <clears throat> having said that, the Javelins used to run night um, uh, alert. And they actually did have uh, one incursion, which okay. is quite interesting. Yeah. Apparently, um, C-130 came over one night from somewhere in Sumatra. And these two javelins got airborne and intercepted it. It crossed the border. And they did the standard thing, which in those days it probably still exists, where uh, one aircraft pulls up alongside the offending aeroplane and waggles his wings and makes all appropriate signals to bugger off. Yep. And the other one sits about a mile behind with his missiles humming. Right. So if he doesn't bugger off, he can shoot. Yep. And for two nights, the C-130 did that. It would turn and go away again. On the third night... Uh, now this may not be consecutive nights, it may have been spread over a week or so, but the third time it came over, um, the Javelins did the same thing and the C-130 did not turn. And it hit the coast of Malaya, just north of Kuala Lumpur, 
and the Javelin pilots basically saying to the radar guy, well, what do you want me to do? Yeah. And of course, they were a little bit unsure because this had never happened before. And Do we fire the first shot? Yeah. And the guy sitting down the back, and this is all sort of in, 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 in darkness, but he can see enough because he sees the rear doors of the C-130 open and it's lit inside so he can say, hey, they've opened the doors. Yeah. And the next thing, half a dozen parachuters jump out. Oh. One of them apparently almost went straight through the Javelin because it was just sitting behind. Yeah. And at that point, they said, that's a hostile act. You're cleared to shoot. And the guy down the back unleashed a fire streak missile and took the C-130 out. Oh. Blew his wing off. Um, these parachutes, I believe, floated down, landed, because the alarm went up straight away. Yeah. They were arrested by the local policeman on this little village north of Kuala Lumpur. And on interrogation, they didn't even know where they were or what they were supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> which makes you really wonder what the Indonesian High Command was thinking at the time or whether or not they weren't really supposed to jump out or they thought they were on a training exercise and the C-130 pilot just got it a bit wrong. Yeah. You never know. And that is the only hostile incursion that I'm aware of in that area. Um, down south in the uh, Borneo-Sarawak area where the, they had borders on the same piece of territory. There were a lot of on-ground things going on down there. Yeah. Australia had uh, special air service people there. And the RAF had a hunter detachment in a place called Labuan, which was in Sarawak or Sabah, I can't remember which now. And um, very shortly after I got up there, the, the, the hunter squadron down south actually called for help because they, they were having difficulty servicing their airplanes. They were running out of spares or there was some modification required and they wanted to pull out. So the whole of three squadron, uh, deployed to Labuan okay. uh, to, to, to hold the fort, if you like, for about a month. I didn't get to go there because I was sent to Ubon about the same time, so I missed out on that bit. And we'll talk about Ubon another time. Yeah. So we actually had uh, one squadron down to Labuan for about a month, holding the fort until they would do whatever modifications required with the, with the hunter, and then you know, they swapped back again. Right. So from the point of view of confrontation, that was about it. And in those days, of course, uh, Singapore was part of the Malaysian Confederation. They pulled out later on. I can't remember the dates and so forth, but apparently it wasn't working for them, so they became a separate colony or separate country. But in those days, it was quite a free access across the border. So we uh, actually went down to uh, Singapore and played with the javelins, sorry, with the, the hunters, and they would come up to Butterworth and play with us. So we had quite a lot of interplay between hawker hunters and sabres, which was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can recall when we, the first time I went down there, I'd only been with the squadron a couple of months, and we deployed the entire squadron, three squadron down to Singapore for a big exercise. And um, we parked all our aeroplanes in a line, we tipped, we tipped, I think we, we took about 10 aeroplanes down there. And parked them all in a line behind this line of Hawker Hunters, so again, about 10 Hawker Hunters. And so all the RF pilots came out to look at our little jets and we wandered over to have a look at theirs. And I remember climbing up on a ladder and peering into a Hawker Hunter. And again, my first impression was, oh no, it's a vampire because there was a bit of a dog's breakfast in the cockpit. <laughs> and this was emphasised by the fact that whilst I'm looking in this cockpit, I heard this very pucker British voice from a guy standing on a wig of a sabre saying, hey, chaps, they're all the bloody same. <laughs> and these RF pilots could not get over the fact that every one of our sabres was identical in the cockpit, which was a pretty good thing. You could just swap around. Yeah, right? yeah. And I might also mention there were no names, no markings or anything on our sabres. They were just silver. 
They have no squadron markings, no coloured noses, no wingtips, no names, nothing like that because of the situation with changing aeroplanes into Thailand. Yeah. It was a political thing, so they couldn't identify which aeroplanes they were. Right, right. Just a little tail number down in the back. Now, so I got talking to some of these hunter pilots later, because they all had their names on the side. And he said, oh yes, we have to have our name on the side so we can tell which one's ours, because they're all so different, you have to get familiar with your aeroplane. <laughs> and he pointed out things like start buttons and all sorts of fundamental controls were in different places in different aeroplanes. He said they had about a dozen or 20 different modification states. They were trying to standardize them, but by the time they got some standardized, another modification would come out and they'd all be changed again. And even he wasn't particularly impressed with all of this. So you have to have your airplane so you didn't flip a wrong switch somewhere. <laughs> we could not believe this at all. And despite the fact the Hunter was a significantly bigger, heavier airplane than the Sabre, the cockpit was smaller and more cramped. So again, we had the same British idea of building a good airplane and then squeezing the pilot in somewhere. And of course, New Zealand listeners will realise that there's a Hunter flying over uh, out of Tauranga right now, which is a really slick restored airplane. <clears throat> but essentially the Hunter was a bigger airplane, um, bigger wings, etc., which gave it about the same wing loading as the Sabre. Yeah. It had a bigger engine, it's 10,000 pounds of thrust, about 25% more power than ours, but the airplane weighed 25% more. Yeah. So at the end of the day, the power-weight ratio was about the same. I suppose, you have, people don't realise that the RAF, since prior to the Hunter coming online, had 300 F-86s. Okay. They had more F-86s in the Royal Air Force than the Australian Air Force had of the later variants. Right. right. Um, I think they started with the, with the, the E models and went to F models. But they were the standard uh, American six-pea shooters and the small engine model. Yep. And the Royal Air Force obviously um, discovered the same as the Australian Air Force did, that it needed more power, more firepower, etc. So rather than modifying it like we did, they decided to build a whole new aeroplane. But of course they had to have a British aeroplane, didn't they? But still. Yeah, terribly, terribly British in yeah, those days. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the Hunter, as far as I can, I know, is, only, is the second last fighter plane that the Brits ever built exclusively. The last one was the Lightning, and since then they've always been in consortium with European countries building all these other airplanes. Right, right, yeah. So they completely re-engineered or redesigned a new airplane, and I get the feeling, although they won't admit it, they stole a few ideas from the Sabre, uh, like the all-flying tail and and a few little things like that. Yeah. But it wound up with a twin gyro gun sight which looked very similar to the, uh, the one in the Sabre. And uh, so, it, so they created a similar performance aeroplane um, completely differently. And, uh, but they, they had one thing that the Sabre didn't have which gave them an advantage at low level, but not an advantage at high level. And I, I must explain at this stage, you never just leap into air combat with a dissimilar airplane unless you do your homework. Yeah. And we used to sit down literally for a whole day doing what we called a comparative analysis of different shapes of airplanes, where they'd have advantage, where they'd have a disadvantage, so that we knew where to fight them and where not to fight them. <clears throat> now, I don't know if the RAF did this. I'm sure that uh, a few of the younger pilots didn't, their pilots, because they had a thing called combat flap, which is their equivalent of these the slotted leading edge of the early model Sabres, yeah. but it had the same problems. Okay. At low level, below 25,000 feet, where the indicator airspeeds are higher, the combat flap worked. All they did was select this lever in the cockpit to the combat position. It was a hydraulically actuated flap of a certain pressure, and it would, as you slowed down, bleed the flaps down more, and as you sped up, would bring them up again. So you're always getting this progressively variable flap depending right. upon 
the speed that you were doing. Yep. So that the aeroplane would turn tighter than us at low level because its combat flap would start to bleed down and you could actually see their turn rate be enhanced quite markedly. Yep. But above 30, 35,000 feet, it had the reverse effect. Okay, And I can remember chasing a hunter one day and I was not getting anywhere. We're about the same turn rate. We're about, I suppose, 38,000 feet by the time I'd manoeuvred to get in behind him. And we're pretty well evenly matched yep. around the corner. I wasn't quite pulling a lead on him. And the next thing, I almost saw this shockwave come off the underside of the wing. This guy had selected his combat flap and it came down, I don't know, five or 10 degrees and yep. bang, shockwave and the airplane just stopped turning. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, gotcha. <laughs> because you know those high Mach numbers, you don't want to be trailing flaps because it does the reverse effect. So I got to the point where the senior pilots in 9 Squadron realized this as well as we did in, in our squadrons. And we'd have these air combat days, or we started out having this air combat day where the hunters wouldn't come above 35,000 feet and we'd go to 45 and sit there circling each other like mangy dogs <laughs> with the sabre leader saying, come on up, and the, and the hunter leader saying, no, you're coming down. <laughs> <laughs> it finally got to the point where we had to say, okay, Today will be a high-level day. We'll go and fly in your territory, and tomorrow will be a low-level day. You come and play in our territory, so they could each get some, each get some practice. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that was good from the point of view that when we fought in their territory, knowing they had the advantage, then it came down to tactics. And some of these uh, last-ditch manoeuvres that I mentioned in training, which we never used because we knew them all, actually started to work because they didn't use those same last-ditch tactics. So when you're fighting as a, and you always flew as a pair. Uh, never as a single aeroplane, so you had one, one guy doing the chasing, the other guy sitting behind in an arrowhead type formation, yep. looking over his shoulder. Yep. And whenever these guys would sort of get anywhere near advantage, you'd split and do these things, and it, it quite often worked. So we, we kind of held our own at low level, but we ate them alive at high level. Of course, the other thing we had was missiles, and they didn't, and they thought that was terribly, terribly unsporting old chap. <laughs> <laughs> that we would slope in behind them, uh, uh, be a radar director, a couple of miles behind, and, and claim a kill. And they hadn't even seen us yet. <laughs> Not all old chaps. So again, we had non-missile days and missile days. <laughs> so it got, it got to be quite... So at least we could all practice our, our thing. And it became damn good fun. It really did. And we got on very well with these guys and, and had a play. So there's certain... And, and I suppose in our own way, we taught them where they had the advantage and not to go elsewhere. And again, from my point of view, having not done this against dissimilar airplanes like this again, uh, it taught me where the Sabre was the advantage yep. and, uh, and not go where you didn't have an advantage. And this stood me in very good stead, all of us in very good stead, when we started playing with the Yanks up in, uh, in, in Thailand. Right, right, right. Um, part of our deployments to, uh, to Tang was also not just to play with the, with the Hunters, but they also had a high explosive bombing range there. Uh, we had one up in Budworth on, on a little island called Song Song Island where we, we used to fire dummy stuff just like we used to back in our range in, in, in Newcastle. Yeah. But we never dropped high explosive stuff there. They had a very high altitude range set up there for Balkans to come over and drop bombs from 50,000 feet. And if they kind of hit that corner of the world, then you know, that was fine. Yeah. Uh, we needed something a bit more specific than that. And just off the west, sorry, the east side of Singapore Island, there was a little rock called China Rock. And it was just a tiny little rock, just an aiming point. And it wasn't far off the coast because the actual quadrant huts that took the triangulation on our fall of, of bomb were actually on the coast. Okay. And again, for those people who are not familiar, the whole of Singapore is about the same size as Lake Taupo. Right. 
right? It's not very big. And on that airfield, on, on that island, there were four major airfields, all with runways pointing exactly the same direction. So you better be sure which one you're landing on. Okay. We were based in a, uh, an airfield called Tenga, which was their fighter base, which was right over the west side and used to have to circle around to either to the north or the south of the island with our bombs on to go and drop them on China Rock. And we did this quite regularly. But my next claim to fame, if I can call it that, or infamy, was uh, as a result of this. I discovered a particular um, piece of circuitry in the Sabre which no one knew about, never thought about. Yeah. And this was involving the Sidewinder circuit. When they made the Mark 32 with the, with the two different station wings, they somehow integrated the Sidewinder firing circuit with the bomb circuit. In, I, I, I use a common wire somewhere, but what it meant was that the one second delay between firing the missiles also applied to the bombs. Right. If you had individual bombs, you could select the bomb switch to salvo, which means you pickled, both fell off. But if you had it selected to uh, single, right, theoretically as quick as you press the button, the bombs would come off unless you had the Sidewinder switch selected on. Right. As it transpired, um, by now I'm a, a section leader, right? so I've got a junior guy on my wing, and there's only two of us, as I mentioned, doing HE bombing, yeah. and we were heading out to China Rock to drop our 500-pound bombs, and the weather was starting to get really gloomy. Coming in from the southeast was this massive line of thunderstorms, so I thought, gee, we better get there quick. And uh, my wingman went unserviceable for reasons I cannot remember. So I thought, right, I'm going to do it myself. I was delayed about 10 minutes waiting for him to for the decision, finally said. So I launched out of, out of Tanga, zoomed up around the top of, of Singapore Island. And by the time I got to China Rock, it was already starting to rain and the cloud was down at about 1,500 feet yeah. and looking particularly dark. And I thought, oh, God. And the rain safety officer said, hey, look, you, know, you, you better just get rid of them quick and get the hell out of here. It's, it's rolling in faster than we thought. Yeah. It's really coming. So I thought, what do I do? I'll drop them both simultaneously. I couldn't dive. I couldn't get anywhere near enough height to do a proper dive. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll drop them alive in the range. Because if you want to drop them safe, you have to go down about 100 miles south of Singapore, halfway to Jakarta, and drop them in, over the edge of the continental shelf or something or other, and they'd sink to the, to, into the abyss and never be seen again. Yeah. But, once the, but you had to drop them safe down there. You couldn't drop safe bombs so close to Singapore because some diver might go down and say, oh, what's this, and pull a pin out and go bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I dropped them alive. So I came zooming in at low level, about 1,500 feet, so I decided I'd go as fast as I can to get away from the blast radius. And uh, I selected, I had it, I did, wasn't even looking inside the cockpit because it was so murky outside. And I lined up with the target, and as it vanished, I just went press, press on the button. And within a second or so after that, I'm in this heavy rain shower and low cloud, and I felt boom, boom. I thought, oh, that's it. And the range safety officer reported, yes, he, he sort of saw a bang and, 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 and saw a splash, but he was also looking through the rain and wasn't sure. Yeah. So I headed off home. It was a bit in cloud, so I, I turned a bit earlier than I should. So when I came out of cloud, I'm right across the top of Singapore Harbour. Now, Singapore Harbour is one of the, the busiest harbours in the world, mm. even back then. There were ships everywhere and little boats and things and the city was just off my right wing tip i'm down about 500 feet now to stay underneath all the approaches and things like that and i thought okay fine just hightailing for home and uh, i got to tanger did the standard arrival and the pitch out which presented my belly to the control tower as i pitched out around the circuit and the man in the tower said um you appear to still have a bomb underneath you oh no i dropped them both 
um, it doesn't seem that way. So I landed and they said, will you just roll off at the far end of the runway, please, off there, and stop. So I did. Of course, all the yellow vehicles come charging out towards me, and they all stopped 100 yards away, and guys got out and stood there with me. And I thought, shit, <laughs> what's going on here? Now, I must add, I must add at this point, our standard procedure where we dropped HE bombs, you select the fusing switch, all that was was a little electromagnet in the bomb rack which grabbed hold of a wire, yeah. a loop of a wire. And so when the bomb fell away, this wire would pull a pin out of the fuse in the tail of the bomb. And that unscrewed and armed itself, right? Yeah. You, having dropped the bombs, our, de our deal was to leave the fusing switch in the armed position so that when you got back home, turned the power off, these fusing links, these little wires, would drop onto the ground, which proved you dropped the bombs live. So if one hadn't gone off, then it was an unexploded bomb, which is dangerous. Right. As opposed to a pilot who's dropped them safe because he didn't fuse them properly, which are two different problems, right? Yeah. So to prove that you know, they went bang, or should have gone bang, so if one didn't, at least it was had been fused properly, which means it's highly dangerous. So of course I had the fusing switch in the armed position the entire trip over the top of Singapore Harbour. I had a fully fused 500 pound bomb sitting under my wing. Oh. The bomb release button is about half a centimetre left of the trim button, which you are flicking all the time with your thumb. Oh. Yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out, of course now of course I shut down the aeroplane so the fusing solenoids had let go. So the bomb was actually sitting there quite safe with the wiring. But a whole bunch of people sidled up to it very slowly. <laughs> First thing I did when I got out, I just ran around and, and, you know, <clears throat> and, and looked, oh, the fuses are in, so I signal and said, yeah, the fuses are in. So there were many questions about how could this be? So they very carefully removed the bomb and took it away to the armament area again. And uh, I went back and got the airplane a short time later and taxied in. And one of the senior engineering officers actually had a look at the whole thing and said, you've still got the sidewinder switch in, in the, in the you know, firing position. I said, yeah, but I've got no sidewinders, not even pylons. He said, yeah, I suppose that should make a difference. And he went into the circuitry and came to me the next morning and said, I've been looking at this overnight. He said, have a look. That actually gives you a one-second delay. How quick did you press the button? I said, pretty quick. <laughs> press, press. He said, well, obviously, the two presses you made on the button were within one second, which is quite oh, easy right. to do, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, so everyone learned that, you know, A, press them slowly, select salvo, or make sure all your sidewinder switches are in the the off position. Right, right. Yeah. Wow. So I just used to think back about if, what if I just hit a bump as I was trimming over the middle set and my, my finger had hit the button. You know, I could put a 500 pound bomb through the QE2 or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> or worse, you know, hit, hit a Singapore naval vessel and they would have thought it was from Indonesia and started World War Three. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, that, was, that was interesting. Wow. <laughs> So, you no, know, uh, up at Butterworth, what was the, the lifestyle like and the, the sort of adjustment after living in Australia? I thought it was brilliant, actually. Yeah. Um, I first got to Singapore and it was just... Because when, when, I, when, when I was set up there, I flew up... I think they flew me up on a 707 um, into Singapore. Yeah. And then the next morning, I was to catch another airplane up to, uh, up to Penang. In fact, it was a Comet 4 that I flew... Yeah, I've never been in a Comet 4, right. and just as an aside, I can now understand why the 707 was regarded the better airplane, because the Comet 4, like all these British airplanes, was tiny inside. Okay. Very narrow fuselage, compared with the 70, it was you know, slimmer. Anyway, just by the way. It was teeming with life. 
but it was exotic. All the colours and the smells, some of them not so good. Yeah. Um, but I thought, wow, this is really cool, compared with Australia, which by comparison was fairly bland. And of course got to Butterworth, uh, which is on the mainland, and uh, I, I was single at the time, at early stages, so I lived in the officer's mess there, which was straight out of the Rudyard Kipling. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Yeah. Uh, the, the old White Raj's palace almost. You know, huge, big rooms with ceiling fans and all, and it was right on the coast, so you, you, you walk out of this huge open area of the mess across about 100 metres of lawn to the beach. And it was just great. And of course, over on the island, which we used to visit all the time, was Georgetown, which was just teeming with life, all duty-free. Um, and again, there was a hotel there, I remember, called the Runny Mead, terribly British name. Yeah. And it really was Rudyard Kipling. Yeah. It still had the servants wearing the, the, the high-button um, white coats with the fez and the white gloves would usher you into the bar and serve you. You couldn't go to the bar. It was all you know, silver tray service. Uh, running around the place, wow. and it really was. And I just thought I've just stepped back into a Rudyard Kipling story. Really, <laughs> yeah. it was amazing. Yeah. Awesome. <clears throat> See, I, I loved it there. However, having said that, I'd only got there a month. Most of the stories I've just told you occurred three, four months into my tour when I went to Singapore. Yeah, I'd only been there a month when I was sent straight to Thailand okay. for two months. Yeah. So in the first three months, I spent two months in Thailand and one month in uh, in, in Butterworth. And Thailand, that oh, was a whole different story. We lived in a slum. Oh, really? You know, that we lived in tin huts on, the, on the, the Royal Thai Air Force base there, which was sort of acceptable. I've lived in them before. But the town was really just one huge slum. There was a river flowing past called the Moon River. Now, that sounds very romantic. Breakfast at Tiffany's stuff. Yeah. Wrong. It was spelled M-U-N, Moon River, and it was mostly mud. And regularly there would be dead sheep and goats floating past. Yeah. And the odd human body, I'm sure. <laughs> and it really was a disgusting place. And that was quite a letdown. Compared with the exotic east, this was not the exotic east. This was just a slum. Yeah. Anyway, so that was the, the life up there. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it as a single officer at that stage, living in this area. So, so Butterworth, <coughs> uh, what was the countryside? Was it jungleous or? Oh, Butterworth itself was uh, on the coast, so it was fairly flat and very, very fertile. It was like a market garden area there. Yeah. And uh, how can I put it? If you anyone's familiar with the area at all, there was this ridge of mountains, very much like the South Island of New Zealand. Yeah. It was this high ridge of mountains. Didn't go as high as the New Zealand ones, and certainly didn't have snow, being the tropics. But the mountains there in places went up to six, seven thousand, eight thousand feet high, yeah. and they were all very dense jungle. In fact, uh, you go up into the mountains and it was really nice, it was quite cool. You get above the, the sort of the, the humidity level there. The mountains were more on the eastern side, so they would run, run straight down into the sea on the eastern side, but on the western side where Butterworth and Jakarta is, there's a bit of flat land. It's a little bit like, again, South Island where you've got the Canterbury Plains between yeah. the mountains and the ocean. Yeah. Um, quite green, of course, a lot of palm trees and that sort of stuff, but quite quite arable and, and market gardens and all there. So that was, Butterworth was like that. We had to travel oh, a whole 10 or 15 minutes flying time before you hit the mountains Okay. out of, out of there. So it was very pleasant, very pleasant very, place very indeed. Right. And all the beaches were white and sandy. North of where we used to drop our bombs was Langkawi Island, which in those days was completely deserted. Now it's one of those tropical resorts where you pay a million dollars to go and spend a wonderful time out exactly, there. Exactly, yeah. Um, but we used to have a bombing range quite close to that, in fact, in those days. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, if you talk about that, the, 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 the range we had, there was called Song Song Island. 
and we actually had a, um, uh, a target which was just four 44 gallon drums or 200 litre drums nowadays yeah. strapped together and painted bright yellow and they floated in the water a couple of hundred yards off this sand spit uh, on Song Song Island so the quadrant huts at each end of the island could triangulate on that. The sand spit actually held our gunnery targets so set them up there, yeah. and so we used to shoot rockets and, and drop bombs and things on there. Very, very similar to the, the situation back at Saltash, except <clears throat> that they couldn't get any sort of potato digger out under the sandbar there to get rid of some of the old stuff. Yeah. Uh, it was assumed that most of the bullets hadn't gone through the target would then go into the water beyond, which they did if you hit the target. But if you managed to sort of undershoot the target, you could wind up with some um, shells and some shells, but ball ammunition in the sand. Yeah. And I think I alluded to this on a previous talk. We had one of our sabers up there who actually uh, lost his engine. He picked up a ricochet. Uh, his bullet had hit the sandbar yeah. and kicked up an old 20 millimeter round, which they figured afterwards had been fired by a meteor, or an RAF meteor from way back. Right. It had been in right. the sand for 20 years or something. Wow. It kicked it straight up in the sky. So as he pulled off, it went. he intercepted this thing on the way uphill, went straight down the spout and put the fire out. Fortunately, he was doing a fairly high speed, and he had enough altitude to uh, to get up there and uh, glide back to the base, which was something that happened to me a little while later too, without without a bullet. Okay. Um, did they glide well? Did they say that? Oh yeah, they do very well indeed. <coughs> Most subsonic jets actually um, glide particularly well. I mean, you hear stories of airliners and so forth losing their engine and gliding for hundreds of miles. Yeah, yeah. From forty thousand feet, we could glide a hundred nautical miles. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty good, eh? It's pretty good, yeah. Uh, best glide speed was 185 knots. Okay. okay. So yes, yes you could. Um, I suppose while we're on that subject, uh, later on um, in my, my tour there, I actually had an engine malfunction, but the first one ever, first serious malfunction I ever had, yeah. and we talked about ejection seats earlier on, I was closest I've ever come to using one. Um, I was leading a, another young guy, we're going on a low level strike mission somewhere out through the mountains, and we planned to do it at 420 knots, low-level speed. Yep. And uh, just got airborne, and uh, I suppose we were only about five minutes out of Butterworth, heading towards the mountains. Hadn't quite made it to the really heavy mountains yet, just as well. And suddenly there was this vibration went through the airplane. Not, not very severe. In fact, if it had been there right from the beginning, I probably thought, oh, this is just a slightly rougher engine than the others have got. But yep. because it just suddenly clicked in, I thought, that's odd. What could that be? Yeah. So I called to my wingman, her name was Terry. I said, Terry, I've, I've picked up a vibration here. I'm not quite sure what the, what's going on, but I'm going to ease up a little bit because we we're right on the deck. Yeah. And so he said, yeah, okay. So I eased up. I'm pulling up to about, just easing up to about 2,000 feet when poof, big compressor stall, engine, JP, jet pop temperature went through the roof and the RPM went the other way. And oops, so I just hauled the nose up and big wing over back around towards the airbase and I made it to about 12,000 feet <clears throat> in this big sweeping U-turn. While I'm doing that of course I'm trying to close the throttle and then I smoothly reopened the throttle and found that I could get about 5,000 RPM which is about 25% thrust. Yep. Um, again for the for the rivet counters the Avon the early Avon engine which is only a single spool engine at low power you had to dump some of the compressor air overboard otherwise because it was too much um, for the, uh, the engine to take, the pressure ratios were wrong. Yeah. So they're called the bleed valve range. If you look at a Sabre, it's got these gills on the side just above the uh, the roundel, the little louvers, in fact, not gills, where the, the dumped air would go overboard. Above 5,500 RPM, 
these things would close and you get the max airflow through it. Now this, so this was a critical area. This is an area where why we couldn't close the throttle and do a touch and go because getting it up to that first five and a half thousand revs because of this pressure ratio problem yeah. the acceleration engine was quite slow and occasionally would hang up uh, and I found that I could get up to this and it would compress the stall again so I hadn't lost all my power I was down about 20% thrust yeah. so 12,000 feet with an airplane that glides fairly well because we're clean uh, with about 25% thrust I thought oh maybe I can but now I'm pointing back at um, at the airbase, and I made the appropriate radio call, which is like, get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> so they cleared the decks. And so I just pointed at Butterworth Airbase, which I can see over on the coast, and just sat there at Optimum, waiting to see if the numbers worked or not, preparing myself to get out. Yeah. Yeah. Seat down, visor down, toggle down, green apple pulled, you know, the whole bit, feet back, head back. I'm sitting there waiting to eject. So I had one hand on. Oh, the left hand was on the ejection lever because I've now set the throttle at about 5,000 revs and it was hanging in there. The left hand was on the ejection lever and the right hand was on the stick with my feet already back in the steps. And I figured I'd need about 2,000 feet as I'm sort of getting into the circuit area to, to give me uh, a go at getting in. And also that was the minimum safe ejection altitude. And I wasn't about to start pushing it below that to hell with it. You know? yeah, yeah. They were already phasing the saber out. Mirages were coming. What's the point? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in fact, I, I made a little note here, it was um, 963, I think, was the one that I, doesn't matter. Anyway, I got to the uh, to my the key point that I chose in about 100 feet to spare. So I just flew a normal circuit, because normally you fly the circuit with about 5,500 RPM with the speed brakes out against it. Yeah. So I just started playing the speed brakes in and out to control my approach, in much the same way as a glider pilot plays his speed brakes. I yeah. managed to land the aeroplane without any problem at all. Okay. I even had sufficient residual thrust to taxi it off the runway and taxi it in, you know? Yeah, yeah. It actually, the engine idled okay, but just wouldn't go up past about 20% power. And of course I got out and all the troops come scurrying around and, uh, and had a look at it and there's all these metal filings all the way down the tailpipe. Ooh. I remember the senior warrant officer taking one look at that and went, holy shit mate, what have you done to the engine? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently it had thrown a compressor blade and just gutted the engine and it was just, just hanging in there, you know? Yeah. And he was of the opinion that the whole thing should have blown up. Yeah. You know, wow. So it didn't blow up. Yeah, and that, that's probably the worst situation I've had. I had a, I've had another couple of engine malfunctions and forced landings since then, one of which was my own stupid fault, um, for a future discussion. But this is the first, the first and most major incident I had. So as I mentioned earlier, I was a pretty reliable old airplane, yeah. and uh, worked well. Must get the old adrenaline pumping there. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! 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 As I say, I can still remember the, the procedure. Seat down, visor down, toggle down. Had this little toggle on your mask, which you bend down, which really clamped the mask to your face. Yeah. Very handy for high altitude pressure breathing, uh, but also stops it being ripped off your face in the slipstream if yeah. you happen to eject at high speed. Um, yeah, and I can still remember, I can still go through and say, sit me in a saber, I can, I can run it today. It just becomes automatic, it comes ingrained. Yeah. Skipping way, way ahead. I had a ground job at Wagga many, many, many years later, um, and they had an apprentice school there. Uh, and this apprentice school used to pull saber. They had a saber, and they pull it apart and put it together, and pull it apart and put it together again for, for apprentice engineer training. Yep. And also they had a um, uh, a bit of a course there for these guys on how to marshal an aeroplane. These were you know, being trained as ground troops. Yeah. Yep. And they used to use these little tractors and marshal them around like their aeroplanes. Well, this one particular day, I got a phone call from this old sergeant who used to be a 76 squadron, and I happened to be there. And he remembered me and he said, sir, would you like to come down and taxi a saber? I said, yeah, I'd love to. So we're, we're doing this uh, marshalling training and it just so happens that we've got this aeroplane 
all set up the same way, uh, set up yep. to taxi. So I went down there and I crawled around this airplane and I looked at him and I said, this is a pretty good job. He said, yeah. I said, this would fly, wouldn't it? And he said, yeah. That's why we've only given you 200 pounds of fuel. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> so I got in this airplane, taxied around for about 15, 20 minutes while they marshaled me. And I remember I pulled, the, when it was all over, I pulled the stopcock and my hand went out and flicked the switches like a touch typist because you had to turn the fuel the switches off the right way to open little va transfer valves in the wings so they could fill it up again. Yep. And my hand just flicked out, stuck out, went click, 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 click. And then I looked at my hand and said, what did you just do? <laughs> it was like this, this muscle memory of how to work it. So yeah. I thought, yeah, I can still do this. <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> so now we're getting way, way off the track here. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> did you come across um, the New Zealanders who had the cameras up um, there as well? They were in Singapore as well? No. I know. I don't know when they were there, but they weren't there when we were there. Were they in the 60s then? I think so. No, no. Uh, 14 squadron. I honestly never did, no. Okay. Interestingly, even though we had a Canberra squadron right there, we didn't have much to do with them. They sort of did their own thing. I remember doing a couple of uh, affiliation things with them because their style of, of operation was quite different to ours, obviously. Yeah. Um, but no, I know we, we played mostly with the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy, and that's the other thing which is interesting to talk about. Because the Royal Navy used to um, steam their ships, as I mentioned, up and down the Straits of Malacca all the time, showing the flag yep. to these Indonesian wallers. <laughs> and so we used to go and play with them quite a lot. We'd do uh, radar intercepts on or try and sneak up on them. And that's when I learned how hard it is to sneak up on a ship. Oh, right, okay. Well, because sitting on the, uh, on the water with a the radar, there's no obstacles and they can see you coming. And I think this was a HMS Victorious which was one of the last of their straight deck carriers, yep. right? not very big. And they had on board uh, Gannets and Sea Vixens. Now Gannet was their early warning radar thing. Um, these ones had the big pod underneath them, big bulb underneath, which is radar. And part of the exercise, they would launch these things and they would circle around above the carrier, I don't know, 10,000 feet or so. Yep. And they could look down. And so we'd try and sneak up them by coming coming out from around the back of Penang Island, but it still gave us about a 30-mile run to the carrier. Yeah. And I can remember this one particular day, we actually went onto their frequency, uh, just for separation purposes. And as soon as we came around, it was four of us, as soon as we came around the end of, the, of, of Penang Island, we just heard this gannet pilot saying, I've got four contacts. Come around the north of the island, heading your way, old chap. Bugger. <laughs> <laughs> We've been seen. And uh, so at that point, of course, they launched their defense, defenders, which were sea vixens. And the sea vixen was really meant to be a, uh, a, well, a replacement for the javelin. Okay, it was a night fighter. It had radar and the whole goddamn bit. Right, again, big airplane. The sea vixen was like a vampire, but bigger with swept wings and all the rest of it. And it was actually capable of Mach 1. It's transonic, about yeah. like us. But it had, being a carrier airplane, of course, it had a much lower wing loading because they had to land these things on this little cricket pitch of metal. Yeah. So of course we, we zoomed on out there only to get bounced on by these uh, these sea vixens. And of course we're at low level and the sea vixens got low wing loading so it had a distinct advantage. So of course once we knew that we were, we were spotted we pulled up to get a bit of maneuvering height. And I think we made it up to about 10,000 feet ignoring the fact that the carrier probably had missiles or something too. Just so we could engage these vixens. And I remember myself and wingman got into this hard term with this vixen coming in behind us. And I'm looking over my shoulder and he's out turning us more than I've ever experienced before. And I thought, holy crap, you know, this guy's really turning, you know. It's the first time, the hunter was never that, that good, you know, but a little bit better at low level, but this vixen was really, really good. Yeah. And I was running out of ideas, so 
pulled off one of the old defensive split last ditch maneuvers and he fell for it completely. <laughs> we split the formation, he followed one, the lower aircraft did the barrel roll under and reversed his turn which he followed and I just dropped down and behind him. By now of course I'm almost above him so I've got the advantage of vertical speed and also your turn is also partially roll because you're doing it in about a 45 degree and shot him down. And I thought, well, there you go. These things actually work. <laughs> and a couple of the other guys got clobbered by these vixens. So, yeah, we thought, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, only chance I've ever had to actually do that sort of thing. We, again, quite often went out there and played with these, this carrick. It was there all the time. At least for a period of six months, apparently, it was deployed to the, the Far East. <clears throat> the, the Royal Air Force used to call it the Far East Air Force. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And so there's permanent presence there. So this carrier would pop up in the Straits of Malacca on a regular basis. Another time, we actually went out there and used what they call their splash target. So they could practice their own air-to-ground or air-to-water bombing. They used to tow behind the ship on about a kilometre-long cable this um, flat barge, I suppose you would call it, not very big, and it was weighted such that it just floated at the surface, but it had this little metal scoop at the front. So as it got towed along at the speed of the carrier, it would set up this plume of water, right, right. and that was the target. All right. Our aim, of course, was to hit it with rockets or bombs and cut the target, cut the cable. <laughs> never did, never did. It was obviously a very heavy thing. We're only using uh, uh, practice ammunition anyway, not high explosive stuff. Yeah. So I can all the, recall this one day we went out there, and of course now we're, we're tracking and shooting at a moving target like a ship, because it was doing a good 20, 25 knots. This yeah. thing was really full steam ahead. And uh, so actually tracking and shooting rockets at a moving target rather than a stationary target on the ground. So that was good training as well. But the highlight was, after we'd done this, they then invite us to do a circuit on the carrier. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, I, I remember this. So I set up the standard circuit pattern on this thing, because they're doing about 25 knots into the, uh, down the straight, so there was virtually no wind. So there was a 25 knot breeze over the deck, which was just not enough for us over. We win like 8,000 feet of runway, thank you, not 800 feet or yeah. 80 feet, it looked like. <laughs> anyway, we all did our little circuit and did a standard old approach and I got the thing down as low and as slow as I dare. Uh, when I hit the power, I went around and beamed the, the conning tower or whatever they call it on the right-hand side there. So I was down to about, I don't know, 50 feet above the deck. And at that point where the carrier pilot would be sort of waiting for impact, it still looked like a postage stamp. And all I could think is, and you land on that too? <laughs> so I've got to say to any carrier pilots who are listening, all right, I, I tips me lid to you. This was in perfect calm blue sky conditions landing on that thing in something like a sea vixen in any sort of bad weather or heavy sea that man you've got to have gonads as big as a bull you yeah. really do yeah. so I, I take my hat off to that's scary stuff the Americans even know that they, they make carriers three times as big I, re I recall reading somewhere about this American carrier pilot who, who said you'd never get me landing on one of those things you know? <laughs> <laughs> just so tiny but they did they operated them quite successfully and, and safely without too many incidents. They had a few, but uh, as you would expect. Yeah, it was quite quite fascinating. Yeah. So that was my one approach to an aircraft carrier. And I thought, not, not, not for me, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we played with the uh, the carriers, we played with the, the, the hunters, we played with the, uh, with the sea vixens and all, and had generally a wonderfully good time there, really did. And of course, all this was interspersed with trips up north. I'll say, I, the, the, the cycle of activities was uh, about four months at home and two months in Thailand, and four months at home and two months in Thailand. In the early days, I actually did two months about. I was there for one month, did two in Thailand, home for two months, another two months in Thailand. And that was during this Labawin thing. 
Anyway, that what I'm saying here is spread over, if you like, the whole sort of two-year period. But when I, when I first got there, I was posted to number three squadron. Yeah. Okay. But halfway through this, about 12 months into my time up there, I was reposted to number 77 squadron, which was a sister squadron. Right. And I'm more of a sister squadron than um, than the two squadrons at, at, at Williamtown were. I mean, we were virtually all in the one building. Yeah. 78 wing was the, the governing body, if you like, and they had a headquarters at the front of the building, and then at the rear, on the left side of the building, was uh, 77 squadron, on the right side was three squadron, and we shared a common shower and, and locker room. Yeah. You could walk from one squadron to the other through the corridor between the, in the shower. So we're always sort of in each other's place and all this. So it was really like one big squadron. Yeah. And not only that, of course, the both squadrons were supporting the operation up in Thailand. So you'd mix it with the guys from the other squadron anyway. So it was more of an administrative division than anything. Right, right. Okay? Yeah. And I'm quite sure that they swapped airplanes too because they, were, they had no markings. And I'm quite sure, I lost track of which airplane we flew, but I'm quite sure that they just sort of had this huge pool of airplanes that allocated to whichever squadron. Yeah. So whilst I, at those early days, it was just like one big squadron, there came a point where back home, the Mirage, of course, is now in quantity production. And number 75 squadron at Williamtown, which was our sister squadron there, yeah. which I never flew with 75, they were re-equipped with Mirage. Okay. Yeah. And as I said at the outset, you know, Butterworth had high priority. So as soon as they were operationally equipped, they deployed the Mirages to to Butterworth. Yep. So the first operational Miro squadron was actually immediately deployed straight north. Okay. So three squadron was sent home. So they took probably a third of the of the, of the Sabres home only um, because of the you know, ongoing requirements to, to look after the, the, the squadron up north and so forth. They needed an extra few. Yeah. And some of the pilots went home and some had only been there 12 months like me were then attached to the other squadron. So I just moved through the corridor to number 77 squadron yeah and uh, spent the rest of my time as a, as a pilot with 77 Squadron. And the next thing we had number 75 Squadron arrived with their Mirage. Okay. All with their color flashes and all the rest of it and so forth. And we're saying, we can't have them up here. Uh, but as it turned out, since they weren't going anywhere near Thailand, they could. And the reason we didn't have any color flashes because of security arrangements in Thailand. Yeah. Yeah. And so we started doing more dissimilar air combat stuff with the Mirage. And I must admit, the pilots had learned how to operate them better then. Right. As I, I may have mentioned, the, the early days, of course, they were Sabre pilots trying to fly mirrors like a Sabre. Yes. Yeah. They then realised they couldn't do that. So they were using their high speed to enter into part of the fight. And they actually had were very effective against a lot of the, the Royal Naval stuff there, because and, and, and even the Hunters, which they played with a bit, yeah. because they were all like us. They were all sort of 1950s generation air combat jets as opposed to interceptors. So the mirrors guys actually had a good time zooming in and zooming out. But this is where, uh, I mentioned before, this funny old radar that the Mirage had started to rear its ugly head. Yes. yes. And that's where the CO of uh, 77 Squadron was, sorry, 75 Squadron was lost because he transferred lock onto an island. One of my friends who recycled in the Mirage very earlier flew into the side of a mountain. And a whole bunch of people going, "Mm, we don't like this aeroplane too much. But they they fitted into the, the Butterworth environment well. I think it was almost a counter move the RAF then deployed a squadron of lightnings to Singapore. Right. And I only I never flew against the lightning because you really couldn't. They only had about a 30-minute endurance. Yeah. They were a manned missile, big slab-sided monstrous airplane, which just like, a, it really was a manned missile. It, it wasn't designed to maneuver at all, just go vertically at Mach 1, shoot at a bomber and come back down again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the Mirage guys had a bit of a play with them, but they said it wasn't very sporting because the things would run out of fuel before you could actually you know, have any fun with them at all. 
And just as an aside, we're talking about dissimilar air combat tactics, there was one other thing, one other disadvantage that the Hunter had uh, over the Sabre. And if you look at a picture of them, you can see the, 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 the quite unique differences. The Sabre had this large hole at the front, but the engine was mounted way down the back. Yep. There was a 16-foot tunnel from the front to the back, okay. which kind of pre-compressed and smoothed out any ripples in the air before it got to the engine which is handy at high angles of attack and, and when you're starting to generate uh, shockwaves and so forth. Right, right. Whereas the Hunter had these two little split intakes in the wing roots. They obviously decided that the Sabre had a lot of wasted space there, which they could better use by filling it with who knows what. Yeah. So they put these little split intakes on the leading edges, just like the Vampire, which funneled air almost directly into the compressor without much streamlining at all. And also, if the Hunter got into a a low-speed yawing situation like a stall turn or something like that, it would immediately blanket one of the intakes and cause the engine to compress the stall because it was still, even though it was a bigger engine, it was still early technology single spool. Yeah. And we had a number of occasions. I remember one particular time I was chasing this hunter and, no, sorry, he was chasing me and I just, I was down at his environment. I just pulled vertical until the sabre almost stopped and kicked in the rudder and just stall, stall turned around and he tried to follow me. And the next thing he calls on the frequency, oh, call it off, call it off, lost my engine. So I did a hard turn around and shot him down. Yeah. To which he said, terribly unsporting, I've got no engine. I said, of course you've got no engine. I caused it. <laughs> <laughs> because he tried to follow this high yawing thing with yeah. the split intakes and just blanked it out. He, he got it relit. So it was no major drama. But he, again, he thought that was terribly unsporting. <laughs> so this was this comparative analysis of where you have an advantage, where you don't. You could tail slide the Sabre under full power and it would just keep going. Okay. Like a pit special. Yeah, yeah. Whereas these things, they didn't like that at all. They didn't like it. Where am I up to here? We're going all over the place with this. But these are the sorts of things that you learned uh, flying around Butterworth all the time. Um, when I got to 77 Squadron, by now, of course, I'm getting fairly senior. <coughs> I, yep. I had oh, no, somewhere around about 900 hours or so in the Sabre when I got there. Um, so I'm fairly senior and I'm... And, and because of our involvement in Thailand, again, another subject, I started to really get the feeling that you know, this might be serious, this might be real. Did that get blanket at all? This might be serious. Um, so I started, I suppose, and this was a progressive thing, as you gain more experience, you start to develop your own style of flying, your own techniques and all. And one of the things I really used to enjoy was rocketry. Yeah. I liked the, these things whooshing out in front of me. Now, the Sabre had the potential, would you believe, to carry uh, four times eight, was that 32 rockets underneath it? Wow. Never did, because you have eight rocket stations, but then you could piggyback one under the other, because they're all zero length rails, they're just little pins. Yeah. And as soon as the rocket moved forward about an inch, it was in free flight. Yep. It didn't slide off a long rail like the Sidewinder did. And so you could hang these things with little saddles one underneath the other. And I've got a photograph of the Sabre with 32 rockets, 36. So 36 rockets underneath it, and they're almost touching the ground. Uh, I think that was just for a photograph, I knew it for, but I've flown with double tier. But we used to just fly eight, eight rockets single tier. I used to enjoy shooting these things off. And I almost had my, my name in the, in the, the RAF news, almost. Uh, and not for the bomb incident, which probably should have been. If I'd, if I'd have blown up a cruise ship in Singapore Harbour, I'm sure I would have been all different. <laughs> when I first got to the conversion unit as a young sprog, the commanding officer had just got his name, big pictures, in the RAF news because he just got eight direct hits with rockets, eight out of eight, the perfect score, which was like impossible to do. Yeah. 
At this stage in 77 squadron, I'm starting to develop my own style and I didn't like the 30 degree dive angle. I preferred to dive a little shallower because basically the way you determined your slant range to the target was to dive at a certain angle and then at the corner of your eye see what the altimeter told you and you know, but try, therefore your hypotenuse of the triangle is the correct range. Yeah, yeah. The ideal range for a rocket was 3,000 feet right, or 1,000 yards. Right? Yeah. I read somewhere because in, in, we used to have the, these books on physiology which you had to sort of know because you're pulling g-forces and, and, and you have to understand how the lungs work for hypervamp, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it was this little note saying that the human eye comes into acute focus at a thousand yards. I thought, that's curious, that's the same slant range as a rocket. So I went out and one day on the rocket range and I just tried this. So without trying to eyeball heights or anything like this, I just stared intently at the target. I mean, there were four 44 gallon drums which just looked like a big yellow blob yeah. until at exactly a thousand yards you could see the four drums. Suddenly you could focus on them. And I thought, wow. So I practiced this a little bit and sure enough I, I didn't fire any rockets on this particular one and then I fired a few rockets. So they were getting pretty close. Yeah. And, uh, and then a subsequent sortie, like the next day I went out and I thought, right, let's really try this on. So I, I, I came in a little bit shallower because I felt more comfortable and I just focused on the target and I pressed the button and direct hit. Wow. I even got to the point of allowing for left and right side rockets because they, they would come off the left, come off the right, come off the left. Because you put the little pipper, little like, dot just to the left of the, of the things, and I'll fire for the right rocket and vice versa. Yep. And I got seven direct hits and I thought, I'm going to get my name in the papers here. Number eight coming up. That's what I'll tell you about. Some of these rockets were a bit old, the ones we used to fire off. They were just a three inch tube with solid cordite inside with a, a very rudimentary venturi at the back. And the cordite is supposed to burn evenly to give the direct thrust. If a part of it gets a bit wet or as time expired, then it burns unevenly and the thrust out the back is not exactly straight out the back. It may be one or half a degree off and that's yeah. enough to throw the rocket right of course. Yeah. And so I came in with exactly the same side picture. This is it, I'm gonna get eight direct hits here because even the range safety officer saying, that's seven direct hits, come on boy, one more to go. <laughs> and I lined this, and I knew it was gonna be another, I pressed the button and this damn rocket headed off <laughs> into the booties. <laughs> and I just hit the button and said, that's a wild rocket. I wound up with a 15 foot average out of eight rockets and it was all on the last one. So if you multiply eight by 15, there's about 120 odd feet. Now no one misses by 120 feet. So yeah. I stuck my hand up and said, no, I want to rerun this three guys. <laughs> seven out of seven. No, no, sorry boy, sorry boy. Anyway, I made it to the top of the rocketry ladder because we had these scoreboards. Everyone scores on the wall all the time. You're all vying for the big first spots. So I became the squadron ace in rocketry for quite some time. Until the next time it came around, I thought I'd do this again. And I discovered something else about the human eyeball. It doesn't come into focus at a thousand meters or even 200 meters when you're hung over from the previous night's <laughs> dying in night. <clears throat> and I almost got a direct hit with the whole airplane because I'm waiting for it to come into focus and suddenly I thought, oh no, this is not good. I better pull out now. And I reckon I kicked up a rooster tail off the water with my slipstream. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. It only works if you're not hung over. <laughs> Oh, and, 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 and that kind of blew my score down to number three or so on, <laughs> on the thing there because I hell with that thing. So <laughs> one has to not, not drink too much if you're going to get accurate rockets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, by now I'm getting fairly senior and uh, about six months into my tour in, uh, in 77, I was awarded category A 
I'm now an A category fighter pilot and I'm the most senior, apart from the flight commanders, I'm the most senior guy in the squadron. So I'm leading all the big formations around the place and, and really having a wonderful time. I enjoyed that thoroughly. Yep. And then out of the blue one day, my old flying instructor, Spike. Remember Spike Jones? Yes, yes. Spike turned up. He got himself refreshed on Sabres back at Williamtown. And he was now in a staff position, but he was refreshed and he came up to do some sort of an inspection. And we're having this big low-level strike um, against the base because the base also had, in the world of all these airplanes, it had its own missile defense system, the old British Bloodhound missiles. Yep. These huge ramjet-powered missiles and things. And they uh, had their own radar for tracking airplanes. They're only good out to about 30 miles. But again, um, I've learned, and you learn a lot of these things by talking to the right people at the right place. Yeah. I remember talking with the, the senior launch controller, or whatever they, they were called, or the bloodhound things in the, in the mess one night. And he said, just let it slip, that they have a problem being on the coast because of a certain sort of coastal refraction of the radar right along the coastline. You know, it's good pointing out over the water, they're good pointing out over the land, but just along the coastline, it's a bit fuzzy, and they sometimes, you know, have difficulty with this. A, bit, a little bit like the coastal refraction you get on an ADF for those instrument pilots who are, who are listening who still use ADFs. Yeah. And I thought, ah, oh, that's right. Anyway, some months went by, and we had this, we were testing the defences of the base, so we had to go up with our four ships, and then come back in and attack the base, and they are going to simulate firing missiles at us. Yeah. And this is the, the, the day that Spike was there. So he said, might if I come along as the number four. So here I'm the glorious leader now, category fighter pilot, and my former instructor who actually got me there yeah. uh, flew just as the number four, followed us around. And of course, we swanned out in the mountains and way up to the north and then picked up the coast and went right down to wave top height at about 400 knots and came zooming down in this very tight arrowhead formation and all in and went screaming across the base at dot feet at warp speed and the missiles never saw us. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> successful strike. I got on the ground afterwards, and old Spike came up and said, "Damn good, no, damn good." You know, and sort of walked away. So I thought that was fine. Yeah, my my, my nemesis and flying and, and former flying instructor record was damn good. Yeah, yeah. that was again one of the highlights of the whole thing. Great. And uh, and then ultimately, of course, the, the, the time came when I'd done my my two point two point three years, and. Uh, Nothing else of any spectacular comes to mind. I've really blown up a harbour. I've had an engine failure. I've taken out the airbase. We've tried to land on an aircraft carrier. And in between all this, of course, it was training as usual. It was just with the different targets, different environment. And so it just expanded your, your horizon. And through all of that, I still believe that of all the airplanes up there, the Sabre was still the best of the lot. Now, I may be a little biased because you know I, I knew the airplane so well, but we acquitted ourselves very, very well against come what may, provided you understood where you had the advantage and, and used it and went so gung-ho that you get yourself caught down a dark alley with a couple of guys with knives. You, know, you have to pick it up. In fact, that, having just said that, one of the standard, I picked this up from the Americans actually, I reckon a close quarter dogfight is like having a, a knife fight in a phone booth. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought is, is about right. Yeah. And if you can't defend yourself in that phone booth, don't go in there. Yeah. That was the whole point. So many times we always pulled away if we weren't set up properly at all. Yeah. Um, and just consulting my little notes here, I, I think we've just about covered that side of it. Um, in the time that you were up there, did, did the political situation between the countries actually change, or was it still just as bad <clears throat> at I, the end as? I can't remember when confrontation officially ended. 
it got a bit slack. I mean, by the, after the, the C-130 was taken out of the sky, I think that sent a message to the Indonesians to either you know, get re-up or get away. Yeah. And it's tapered down. In fact, I was just thinking about this this morning before you came, because as I mentioned, 3 Squadron was um, was replaced by a Mirage Squadron and the Sabres went home. And I'm trying to remember how they got home. Right. Um, they needed to refuel somewhere to get to Darwin. Sabre didn't have a, a bad range, uh, went with ferry tanks on. We used to do thousand mile hops. You, know, you say that very glibly. But I saw this little map just the other day on, on the internet, which has the whole of Europe superimposed on Australia. And you, you just don't appreciate how big Australia is and how far we used to go. Yeah. If you drew a line from the top of Scotland all the way down to the bottom of Greece, yeah. that's the same distance as from Darwin to Melbourne. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So in other words, in a flight from Melbourne up to Darwin, you've covered the whole of Europe yeah. by the longest distance. It's a sort of long, narrow strip. In fact, the whole area of Europe is only half the area of the whole of Australia. So we used to, like when I said we went to Darwin initially, we'd flew across to, to Alice Springs and refueled and headed north on, and standard route home was to come by, by Townsville home again. So each of them was a thousand nautical miles hop each way. So to get home from, and in fact, again, I've, I've spoken to people since uh, who've flown in an airliner, say, to Singapore. Yeah. Halfway through the flight, they're still over Australia. They think, hang on, when's the ocean going to turn? You know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so if you leave Sydney in a, in a Boeing 747 to go to Singapore, half of the flight is still over Australia. The other half is then over you know, Indonesia and the water and so forth, putting it to Singapore. Right. So to get a Sabre home, obviously, they, I, I can't remember where they refuelled. When they took them up there, way, way back before my time, they actually went via Clark Base in, in, um, in the Philippines yeah. and then across um, around Cambodia and all, because Vietnam hadn't broken out when the Sabres first went there. Yeah. That happened later on, so they couldn't go back that way. And for the life of me, I can't remember where they refueled. But they obviously did somewhere. Must have. Yeah. Um, probably snuck around the top of Lava and somewhere like that and refueled or into Timor. I, I really don't know, because Timor was, uh, Dili was still, maybe did three stops. Labuan, Dili, something like that, because the airfields were probably long enough for them. I just don't know. Anyway, yeah, um, yeah so we had a good range in that regard, and, um, and so they took them home like that. Um, and I can't remember how I got on this line of discussion now. Next question. Actually, well, <laughs> just um, talking about the range of distance getting somewhere, how did the POMs get the um, lightnings out there? Did they go by ship? Oh, they must have. There's no way they could fly <laughs> yeah. them there. I think they must have put them in a box and shipped them out there. I don't know. They just suddenly appeared one day. Um, I was, how can I put it? I was still pretty young then, so I was still full of my own uh, own self-importance, if you like, my own flying and all the rest of it. So you focused on your job and all yeah. the rest of it. And the political scenario sometimes just washed over you. Yeah. And what some other Air Force's squadron did at, at, in another, down in Singapore was just, you know, they just appeared. I don't know. I never asked. Good question, though. Yeah. Good question, because there's no way a lightning could ferry anywhere like that. I remember um, <laughs> the British uh, d decided that they would invent a better C-130 too. And they made this thing called the, the Belvedere, I think it was, big four turboprop thing. Yep. And they dispatched some of those to the Far East Air Force. And I, I, I believe this is true. The, uh, the skip, there was about four of them in a formation and they stopped at Aden to, for an overnight or something or other. And the, and the lead aircraft or the skipper of the squadron sent back a message to the RAF headquarters command saying, uh, reach Aiden, scurvy not yet broken out amongst the crew. <laughs> <laughs> this is what he thought of the RAF's finest air transport airplane. 
they weren't very successful. I think they were very quickly replaced by C-130s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that phrase. He, yeah. was, he was obviously castigated for being so flippant about one of Her Majesty's finest transport airplanes. <laughs> I thought, just about says it all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, interspersed with all this, I say, with the trips to Yubon, which really should be a second uh, talk, because how long have we been going now? Probably the duty hour again, haven't we? Probably long enough to bend people's ear. Yeah, 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 yeah we have. Yeah. Um, so how about we leave it at that? If I think of anything more next time around, because as I say, Ubon was a, I was there for eight months, and rather than talk about it in in little two month snippets, put it all together um, you know, in an eight month block, because there was some really interesting stuff happened up there, and the, and you did become a little more aware of the political situation at the time, because Australia was all the way with LBJ. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's when I, as I say, it spilled over into my operations back in Butterworth. But that's when I really thought, gee, I better get really serious about this because you know, I actually could be called upon to do it. Yes. And the other guys are going to be called upon to stop me. So, you know, yeah. So, for okay. another day, right. Well, we'll uh, come back to that in the next episode. Next episode. Thank you very much, Noel. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.